work for the railroad, Grandpa? I work for no man. Got a name, do you? I have no name. Well, that right there may be the reason you've had difficulty finding gainful employment. You see, in the mart of competitive commerce... You seek a great fortune. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, a movie at least one of us has never seen before. This is episode number 78. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis, and joining me this week from Horseshoes and Hand Grenades is Steven. Hello, hello, everybody. Hello, and the producer, Jacob. Woo, woo! What's going on, guys? So, this is episode number 78, and we watched Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Steven, you'd never seen this before. I had not. This was my first venture into the deep south of 1930-whatever. So, how is it? Um, are you a Coen Brothers fan at all in, in terms of movies? I know you like True Grit, because we talked about that before. Yes. Yes, I'm a Coen Brothers fan. Who isn't a Coen Brothers fan that's in their mid-30s? Uh, Nobody. That's a good we question. They, they exist, but... I guess the question is, how did you miss this particular movie? Because this would have come, this should have been kind of right in your wheelhouse in terms of it's music based. It would have come out right about the right era, I feel like. So, how did you miss this one? You ever have a movie that you hear a lot about and your friends talk about, and you're just like, yeah, I need to watch that sometime. But you just don't, even though you know it's something you're probably going to love. Like, I had a buddy in high school who loved the crap out of this movie, but we we never sat down and watched it together. Uh, I don't know. It just flew under my radar. And, I mean, I'm making my way back through the Coen Brothers catalog. I was a big Lebowski fan when this came out. It makes no sense that I didn't watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's making less uh, sense the more yeah. you talk about it. No and kidding. I pushed. I pushed him hard. I'm like, why have you not seen this? This is your movie. It's got Steven written all over it. It really does. Um, so, all right. Well, let's start with our cast because there's three, the three main cast members carry this movie. And we find that a lot. I mean, your, your stars are supposed to carry it. But this was my introduction to Tim Blake Nelson when I first saw this movie. I didn't know really who he was at that point. Um, I had seen, uh, John Turturro a few times. And I love John Turturro, you know, big Lebowski. He's Jesus. You know, he's, he's been in a ton of Coen brother yeah, stuff. And then <laughs> he, was, he was in rounders too, right? Wasn't he the, the kind of, uh, I think so. Guy yeah. that got Matt Damon out of a whole bunch of trouble in rounders. Yeah. I'm, I believe that was him. I think so. I haven't seen that movie in years. Um, and then George Clooney. And for me, honestly, this is probably my favorite George Clooney performance. Um, I don't know if it's his best, but best and favorite don't have to be the same thing. This is my favorite of his. Like, I just love him in this movie. He was good. I like, I, I'm a, I think George Clooney's a fantastic actor. Like, I feel bad that he had to have the script that has handed to him for Batman, uh, Batman and Robin. Yeah. Cause I mean, George Clooney's pretty great all by himself and it takes a bad movie to make him look bad. Uh, but, but man, it was the Coens know how to use him properly mm-hmm. and stretch him. And this was a, yeah, he, this was a killer performance. Absolutely. Well, and I think it was tailor made for him. I mean, that character was 
that has George Clooney written all over it. And the way they wrote it was almost perfect for his adaptation of, of Ulysses. Yeah. And yeah. In, in reading the trivia, I saw that he was their first choice um, to play the role of, of Everett, which makes sense. But apparently, according to the trivia, he didn't understand his character the first time he read the script. So he, he agreed to do the movie without reading the script. The Coens came to visit him while he was shooting Three Kings out in uh, Phoenix. And they talked to him. They'd liked him in uh, the Soderbergh film, Out of Sight. And they offered him the role and put the, the script down on the table in his hotel room. And he said, sure, I'll do it. And then he read the script. <laughs> so for like, he was obviously a fan of the Coens by that point. Um, so then he reads the script. And according to the trivia, he didn't really understand it. So he sent it to his uncle in Kentucky and had his uncle uh, read the script and record it. And again, this is all IMDb trivia, so you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt, but I guess his uncle is like a, a very devout Baptist, so he rem- he, ne- he never spoke any of the references to damn or hell in the entirety of the script. And <laughs> the Coens were like, you know, um, and sort of brought that up to George Clooney like halfway through the movie as they were filming it. Which I think is hilarious, but yeah, I, I guess he's writing our script. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, he's That's just awesome. he's so much fun in this movie. I think is what it really comes down to. Like, he's playing this over the top caricature type of person, but he's just so much fun, and all he cares about is getting his um, his hair treatment, and that's a a great running gag, and I like I like the fact that you know he's in jail. He's on the work detail and all that. They break free. He's got this elaborate thing where he's gonna he's gonna get them, uh, you know, a million dollars. Right? He's a con man, is what he is. So he cons the convicts into helping him because his wife is gonna get married to somebody else. Like I just I love he that. Has to, and, they're all on the same. They're all on the same chain. Yeah, <laughs> he needs them if he's gonna get out. Oh, and well, what a heart what heartbreaking reveal! Oh yeah, good. That the the reveal that um, Pete only had two weeks left on his sentence when they broke free is killer. Like, yes, it is. They didn't, and they they do play it for dramatic effect, but they could have gone even further with how bad that was. Because all of a sudden now the guy's got fifty more years. Like, yeah. oh, that was harsh. But so, Travis, I have a question about that scene. Sure. This is the one scene. Well, maybe maybe there's another one, but this is the one scene that doesn't quite make sense to me because in that reveal where he was like, I only had two weeks left. Why did George Clooney's character Ulysses actually reveal that there was no treasure? Cause he had a built in way out because Pete had automatically spilled the beads about the treasure to uh, the, the lawman, Right. Mm-hmm. And the lawman could go and get the treasure at any point that he wanted. So George Clooney's character had an out. He could have said, well, Pete screwed the pooch on that one and told the lawman where it was, and now it's gone. Thanks, yeah. Pete. But he didn't. So he took the high road here. He actually admitted, you know something? There was no treasure, guys. I conned you. Why did he do that? I think, and the only reason I can think of for him doing that is he's going the high road because he has reached the point where it's the only thing he has left. Like he's not, he's a con man, but he's sort of the con man with a heart of gold. Like he probably did a lot of conning of people that I don't want to say, I hate saying deserved it, but kind of probably did. 
Like it was small time stuff. He was never going to really try to hurt anybody is kind of how I, how I uh, interpret his character. So I think that coupled with, he feels like he's lost his wife and he has no chance to get her back now. Um, and, and all of that, he's sort of at the end of his rope. So he's just going to come clean and just going to say, all right, all right, guys, look, I, this was all just a, a whole, a hoax. Cause you're right. He yeah, has the out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he he's has in a, where he's, he's decided I've, I've got nothing left, you know, so it's yeah. time to do the right thing for once and just tell these guys the truth. Yep. I think that was a lot of it. So, yeah, because and and that's a just a, an interesting and, and fairly powerful scene in the movie for in what is for the most part a pretty goofy movie. You know, last week um, I did Raising Arizona, which is another Coen Brothers movie, and also a very goofy movie that has those those small moments of like very poignant stuff. So I really the Coens are so good at doing that, right? They're so good at taking something that because they really what they do is they make a movie set in our world, but like an alternate version of it where it's all. Everything is amped up to 11 and all the people are kind of, they're not two dimensional, but they're very, they have their caricatures, right? Like Pappy O'Daniel in this movie. I love him. He's hilarious, but there's no way he would be the governor of anything. Um, <laughs> well, in the thirties, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Maybe in the thirties. I, I mean, they had radio. That was the best way that they could get their message across. And that was brand new, newfangled technology, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, but I love the the characters that they have of, you know, you've got John Goodman as Big Dan. Um, oh, John Goodman in anything is great. Uh, really, I mean, Delmar and Pete and you and Everett are all like hyper, not hyper realized, but just these hyper caricatures. Delmar, this movie, like I said, it, it, it um, introduced me to Tim Blake Nelson. And I immediately was like, I want to watch anything that guy's in. Because he's just, you can tell he's having a great time. Mm-hmm. And I, I truly, truly appreciate stuff like that. I had uh, a like bit. The most, he's the most innocent out of oh, yeah. the bunch, oh, too. Like, he, it's like the, the, the heart of a child. Uh, and you could see it in him. It's like you had this, this wisecracking straight man in George Clooney who's like, I got the brains. And then you got Pete, who just seems kind of like your average con. And then you got Delmar, and you're like, "Why are you in jail? <laughs> like, you just how did you get into trouble in the first place?" Well, and I love he has, he has the heart of a child, but he also has the braids of a child. I mean, they turned you into a toad. I mean, come on, <laughs> yeah, I thought you was a toad. That's not the first place I would have gone there, but it's the first place <laughs> he went, right? So, well, <laughs> you have to think too. Like, that's that. Uh, not you know not educated kind of uh superstitious upbringing that leads him to go right to there right he hasn't learned he was never taught any of that stuff he probably barely went to school right and and you're right what is he doing in jail my my guess because the scene where they're all sitting around the campfire and Tommy's playing the guitar and Everett starts asking me you know what are you going to do with your share of the money right because they're they're going to be getting $400,000 in the 1930s yeah that was huge and I love that scene because it's another one of those where you get to just learn a little bit about the characters. Pete has this very, very exacting version of what he wants to have happen. He wants to be the mater d in his own restaurant, which is funny. But he's he's just got this very clear idea of what he wants. And then Delmar is like, I just want to go put the money down and buy back my family farm. 
So I think, I think he's in jail because he was desperate. The, the piggly wiggly yeah. that he knocked over and got sent to jail for, that was an act of desperation because you're right. He is very much the heart and mind of a child. Um, Pete, Pete is, he's the interesting one to me because you can tell he's quick to anger and he doesn't really trust anybody. And he even, you know, he'll, he'll yell at his own family, but then turn around and tell like the kid to go back and mind your paw. You know, even though yeah. a few he's hours earlier, he was yelling about, you know, how he was going to kill, uh, what was Washington wash hog, hog wallop, hog wallop, yeah. hog, wallop. Yeah. hog wallop. No, he's fiercely loyal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even after he was betrayed by the hog wallop, the, his, his cousin, he, he, George Clooney's character said something bad about him. And he was like, you talking bad about my kid? <laughs> yeah. my kid? I mean, he, he's fiercely loyal to, to, to his blood connections and his, uh, yeah, I, He's he's definitely the interesting character of the three because he's got so many uh, I don't know competing um, allegiances. I guess is the best way to put that. That'd be a good way to put it. Um, I so I know. did I did mention John Goodman as Big Dan Teague. Um, he was in Raising Arizona last week, and I said last week, and I'll stick to it. I'll watch anything John Goodman's in. I don't care. I saw Coyote Ugly yeah. in theaters, largely because Me John too. Goodman was in the trailer. <laughs> I did too. I don't think I've even seen that. Isn't that the one where the women are dancing on the bars? That's all I, I think. Yes, I've seen it's late nineties gold. It's the last bastion of late nineties era films before everything went all tentpole action all the time. It's kind of, the, yeah. It's it's actually it was a better movie than I expected it to be. So I yeah, I enjoyed it. It didn't deserve to be that good. No, it did not. the The idea behind it did not deserve to be as good as it was. But, um. Yeah, Holly Hunter shows up as... Uh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to refer to it as like well-executed garbage. Um, it's yeah. probably like the best way to put it. It's like it's not a good movie, but it's very well done enough to make it better than it should be. Yes. Well-executed garbage. <laughs> well-executed garbage. Uh, Kit London in the chat says, how many Coen Brothers movies have people breaking out of jail? Uh, probably most of them, actually. Everyone. That <laughs> yeah. I can, I, everyone I can think of, somebody's in jail or gets out of jail at some point. Um, well, and the Coen Brothers admit to this because I've heard them say before, we write the same movie every time. It's always there's money at the end and some people want it and nobody gets it. Uh, and that's a Coen Brothers movie in a nutshell. Yeah. Everybody wants money. No one gets money. The, I love I love the other one was Joel Cohen saying we basically just keep writing the same movie ripping off Wizard of Oz every time sometimes intentionally sometimes <laughs> unintentionally but they they're like we just keep making the same thing so um, yeah uh, so Holly Hunter uh, returns from uh, again raising Arizona another Cohen brothers uh, kind of mainstay um, she is uh, Everett's wife Penny. Not in the movie for very long. For whatever reason, I haven't watched this in a little while, but I've seen it a few times, and I always remember her being in the movie more than she is. I didn't even recognize her as Penny. Maybe it was just because she was all done up in 1930s-looking outfits and hair, but I didn't didn't even... Oh man, I, even can't, I feel like the accent's undeniable. Yeah, Many once years, once you get the voice. Utter. Yeah. I don't know how, but I missed it. Well, uh, and I said it last week, and I'll reiterate it as well. Nobody plays a scorned 
or upset spouse like Holly Hunter. Like, <laughs> like I want to apologize when she gets upset at people in movies. Like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Uh, um, Charles Durning is Papio Daniel. Now, I love the character of Papio Daniel. He's hilarious. Uh, Charles Durning is, he's been in a couple of Coen Brothers movies, but I always, always conflate him with um, David Huddleston, who was the big Lebowski. He was Jeffrey Lebowski in that movie. And he's done They're not some... not the same person? No. And it's... What? So I do that with uh, with Charles Durning and David Huddleston the same way I do with like Stephen McHattie and Lance Henriksen, where I'm always you could you could easily convince me that you could interchange the two of them in their movies, but they're not. David Huddleston was. Uh, do either of you remember Santa Claus the movie? Um, yeah, they're not the I'm same. Sorry, person. I'm still, <laughs> my brain is still ripped in half. At the fact that that was not. I thought that was him. Nope. No, and but I do oh, the same thing, God. and it, it, it's not until I look it up or I'm like, "That's right." One was Papio Daniel, one was the Big Lebowski. But yeah, you everyone like, does the same thing. That everyone does what we just did. Those two people are separated at birth. They are twins. There is no doppelganger if I've ever seen one. Yeah, it's crazy. Not just in the way they look; it's in the way they sound. Mm-hmm. They they sound their mannerisms are identical. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I can't function. I need to. <laughs> um, because you could. You could have put David Huddleston as Papio Daniel. It would have worked just fine. But no, it was Charles Durning. And they were both. Um, Durning's actually a little bit older. He passed away in 2012. He was 89 years old. Uh, David a Huddleston. Too. What a sucky Christmas present. Yeah. David Huddleston was a few years later at 85 years old. So they both. Uh, wow lasted quite a while and they they had good long careers i mean they're definitely character actors that you recognize immediately the problem is you recognize them both as the same person so <laughs> maybe one of these yes. days i'll play a game is it david huddleston or uh oh. charles durning who who's who That's well maybe That's for uh for the horseshoes and hand grenades uh at dragon con next year we'll play that game <laughs> charles Durning or Huddleston? Everybody be like, what are they talking about? Yeah. Who are they these people? Um, David, D- or I'm sorry, Daniel Van Bargen played Sheriff Cooley. Now, Sheriff Cooley is the um, the lawman. You never hear his name. He's never referred to as Sheriff Cooley, but he's the quote unquote the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I love that guy. So he's, I recognize him immediately, but I he's one of those other character actors. I'm like, I don't know who he is, but I've seen him in everything. Yeah, he's done a ton of stuff. He's got a great voice. Um I'm I always remember him from Super Troopers because yes. he was the uh, leader of the state police. Um and that's where that's where my brain went to. I'm like, I, I gotta remember where this guy's from, and it was Super Troopers. Okay, so here's a question for you. Do did either of you pick up on the references to the Odyssey? <laughs> it's almost verbatim. I mean, the reason I, I ask I that, well, the reason I ask that, some people don't catch it, and especially with Stephen, it being your first time seeing it. But also, I thought it was really funny to read in the trivia that Joel and Ethan Cohen were like, "Yeah, we love the Odyssey, but we've never actually read it." Mm-hmm. Like what they knew <laughs> of it was from uh, cultural osmosis, as they put it. So. When they when they sent a script to Tim Blake Nelson, he he didn't know that they wanted him to act in it, but he studied classics at Brown, 
So he thought they were just looking for like his opinion on it. And so the, the, the trivia is that he was the only one on set that actually knew the Odyssey. (laughs) I I will be honest. uh, If I hadn't been told by you guys and a handful of other people over the course of the, what, 20 years, this has been out. Um, I, hey, exactly twenty years. Um, I would not have known because I, I've never read the Odyssey, mm-hmm. uh, which makes me a complete failure in terms of literary, you know, expertise. But yeah, I missed out, so I I now want to read the Odyssey or at least a, a modern translation of it to uh, to get a feed on what you know what actually they took. I mean, it, it's it's a lot. I mean, if if you if you look back at it, I mean, they didn't take it. Uh, verbatim. I mean, they they have things in there like the blind prophet. I mean, that's there, and the sirens are there, and the cyclops references are there, and mm-hmm. the big journey home to a wife who thinks that he's dead, and yeah. all of that's still there. And you know, the the flood and his relationship with Poseidon. I mean, that's there, and I mean, so there's there's a lot of of that. Um, he leaned into that that uh, um, parallels to the Odyssey. Yeah. And and I like that. I like those. I like that kind of an adaptation of something like the Odyssey. If you're not just going to make a film that's a a adaptation of the Odyssey, give me something that takes the themes and the ideas and set it somewhere weird. So I love that idea of taking you know the Odyssey and some of those ideas and just plopping them down in 1930s Mississippi. And I, I thought that was really cool. And then you work in some of the other stuff like the. Um, Tommy being the uh, illusion or parallel to Robert Johnson and selling yeah. a soul to the devil to learn how to play guitar at the crossroads. So that yes. was, that was yes. really cool. Can we talk about that for a second? Go for it. That's the freaking coolest thing. When Tommy Johnson showed up, I was like, wait a minute. Cause he was at the crossroads. Right. Mm-hmm. And I watched a documentary on Robert Johnson. Who's one of the greatest play Delta blues uh players of that era you know and i'm like oh this is based off robert johnson who by the myth goes sold his soul to the devil in exchange for the ability to play guitar because he was at a show in sun house and a couple other guys from that time were playing a show and he got up there to play and basically got laughed off the stage and so he wanders off he comes back two years later nobody's seen him and melts faces redefines blues as people know it and seeing him show up in this and also play guitar i was like awesome and they wrapped in the whole devil thing and i i was just i was tickled as a fan of that genre and of robert johnson's music i was like very cool and you get all the points and i got chills i still have chills thinking about it oh that's can i add a little context to this sure so we're sitting there watching because steven and i watched it together we decided you know something we're going to take a night we're going to make delicious wonderful hot wings and burn our faces off <laughs> drink delicious beer and watch this masterpiece right so steven is sitting there eating a chicken wing and he looks up at the screen and there's the crossroads i swear i think i saw shrapnel spit out of his mouth. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh that I just, is I great knew what they were doing. i knew what they were doing right away i was yep. like it- so you you picked up as soon as you saw the crossroads you knew what was coming that's see that's awesome yeah 
I just knew because that that mythos. I love the idea of someone like quite honestly sell. Yeah, the devil's a great musician. If you ever listen to Charlie Daniels, yeah. uh, going, hey man, you can have my soul. Just give me this guitar playing skill. Well, and like, I love the line too when they're they're talking to him and Delmar's like, "You sold your eternal soul for that." Well, I wasn't using it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was so good. <laughs> and uh, Chris Thomas King, so who played good. him. He's a, he's a Grammy award-winning blues artist, and that was him playing the guitar, which is always, oh, always like amazing. that. He was good. And, you know, like we, when, he had, when he talked about what the devil was, you know, Ulysses explains he's got a – the quote, the quote was, uh, Satan himself is red and scaly with a bifurcated tail, and he carries a hay fork. Yeah, and right. Tommy Johnson said, oh, no, sir, he's white, as white as you folks, with empty eyes and a big hollow voice. He likes to travel around with a mean old hound dog. That's right. And you just a few minutes ago made me take the connection of the sheriff or the the cop who's chasing them down with the dog as the devil because he didn't have he had sunglasses on. Yep. And I'm like, so it, even during our discussion just now, my mind has blown further open that this was foreshadowed and I didn't even catch it. <laughs> See, and that's that's good filmmaking throwing those layers in there because you get. That's rewatchability. So now the next time you watch this, you'll look for when's the first time he appears and what what is that in relation to when Tommy explains who he is. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So and also he um, from a film standpoint is uh, an allusion to the sheriff or the warden from Cool Hand Luke, um, whose name escapes me now. But it was the same kind of thing where he always had sunglasses on. You never saw his eyes because you never see Sheriff Cooley's eyes. Oh, yeah. He's always got sunglasses on, and it's always mirrored sunglasses reflecting whatever he's seeing. A lot of times is uh, fire. So I thought that was a, a, a neat kind of shorthand way of showing that off, too. You know, I love visual um, visual shorthand in movies. And when you get people that are so good at their craft, like the Coens, and I'm going to talk about Roger Deakins in a little bit, um, who was their director of photography for this and most of their films now but they can create that. So you create this character and then you do something like that. And it makes him that much more imposing of a, a villain in the movie, because now you, you don't really get a sense of what's going on with him ever because you never see his eyes. So, yeah, man, they're so good at what they do, man. This movie was so full of rich, rich dialogue like if you go into a coen brothers movie or a tarantino movie you're in it for the words a lot of the times but what they sprinkle in with the visuals just is like oh it's, it's stuff you have to watch like two or three times to catch what all they're doing mm -hmm. yeah because you you start catching things that it, you get everything in the movie but now when you watch it again you're getting more it's fleshing it out it's adding uh, a little bit extra flavor to it. It's the that kind of stuff is the salt in your food that you wouldn't notice unless it isn't there. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you're seeing it. You're not. You're not really engaging with it, but you're seeing it, and your brain's feeding on it and going, "Ah, look at that." Yep. Somewhere deep in your subconscious, you get it, and that's why it works. Yeah, and oh man, talk about. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head with dialogue too. The the dialogue, especially the first. I would say hour and 20 minutes of the movie. There's so much dialogue and it's so good and you almost can't keep up. Like yeah. 
I capture audio, so I, I'm taking notes while I watch the movies for, for an episode, and I'm always writing down timestamps. And I was running out of room to write down timestamps for audio that I wanted to capture. And I had to go back through and be like, all right, no, I don't need that one. No, that one, you know, I don't need a clip of that. Because there's just so much good stuff in there. And you, you give somebody like George Clooney, who has a ton of charisma already, and now he's going to play this smooth-talking kind of con man character. And, I mean, you don't get – there's no dialogue for, like, the first five minutes of the movie. It's just music and, and visuals. But then he hops up into the train, and the first thing he says is, any of you boys smithies or in other ways, you know, trained in the metallurgic arts. Like That's right. And you know right exactly what's going to happen. Then And then right after that, which is a really funny uh, line – you get a great sight gag of him getting dragged out of the train because the other two couldn't get on and he's chained to them. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's that's very telling as well. Yeah. So I, I love stuff like that. And the Coens also do a great job with uh, visual humor. So George Clooney's hair throughout the movie. Um, oh. Much like Nicolas Cage's in Racing Arizona. Again, I'm making a lot of connections here. But his hair, you can kind of tell what mental state Clooney is in by... Uh, by his hair in a, any given scene. Of his hair. Yeah. Oh, he loves his dapper dad too. Don't try to sell him on that fop. Mm-mm, nope. be the I'm a dapper dad man. That's right. This, this <laughs> movie I quote so much, it's kind of ridiculous and usually they're out of context, but if it's something where I like a certain brand of something and not another one, it's always, I'm a dapper Dan man <laughs> because of those scenes. And like, it's just so good. And and it's that running gag. He's constantly looking for his, his hair treatment, and it's always a source of... I mean, he almost ran back to the car when they were torching the second barn because his pomade was in the car. <laughs> like, it's not worth it. You know, this, is this is something, like, the Coens do that I think is is something you... There's a reason you, you know it's the Coen brothers, and you, you go, you're... you're into a Coen Brothers movie before you even know what it's about is because they do things like this. They spend time on things that they don't have to spend time on. Like, it's not moving the story forward, but it's establishing character and it's entertaining. Like, I'm often thinking about True Grit and the horse trading situation. Yeah. Uh, when she's like, that conversation goes on longer than it has to. But you can't, you're just enthralled by it. It doesn't really bring much to it, but it, it's just like they they're like, you know what? We're going to have this conversation. We're going to put it in there, and whether it drives the plot forward or not, it's worth watching. Yes. Um. And that's like the whole thing between the palm the the general store guy and uh, and Ulysses and the pomade and the fop. Yep. We don't we don't necessarily need it. There's a hundred other ways they establish that he needs his hair product. But this just is a fun exchange between the two. And to tie that in with needing the fan belt in the two weeks and all that stuff they talk about. And you're just, you're in stitches. Yep. By the end of it, you're just like, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. It's just so quick. It's yep. so quick. You guys are two weeks Love away it. from anything. Yeah. <laughs> and like, now, now think about that scene with Everett talking to the clerk. And juxtapose that with a scene from another Coen Brothers movie with a guy talking to a store clerk in No Country for Old Men. You have oh, the yeah. now you're on the opposite end of the spectrum because that whole scene goes long. It establishes what what and who Anton Chigurh is, and it is mm-hmm. frightening and super uncomfortable the whole time because you've already at that point in the movie they've they've had a couple of scenes with him, so you have an idea of what he's like. So you're just waiting the whole time for him to go 
to go full Anton Chigurh and kill the guy because the last person that he saw, he did that to. That you so that's all we yeah. know about him at that point. And now it's this long protracted scene. So yeah, it's like the the antithesis of Everett uh, being jovial almost while still being annoyed uh, that he can't get you know the parts that he needs for the car and he can't get his Dapper Dan. So, yeah, Coen Brothers well, fabric of store clerks. Guys. I don't know. Yeah, I know. Bad. Store clerks in jails. I, wanted to, I know. Right? I, wanted, I wanted to throw this quote out there because I loved it. He said, well, ain't this place a geographical oddity? Two yeah. weeks from everywhere. Yes. That's another one I'll, I will use every once in a while. Ain't this place a geographical oddity? I love the way they use words, dude. I can't get over it. Oh, they, he, so... Everett being this Gabby, you know, con man, his his grasp of language is so great in this. He has a line earlier with um, Wash Hogwallop, where he says, "What it would be just be the acme of foolishness to expect that you have hairnets." And I love that line because I grew up a Warner Brothers kid, so all I think of with Acme is you know Acme products and how useless they were for the Coyote. But Acme is you know. Yeah the pinnacle. And I love that. That and the fact that he can talk that way and he's so quick, quick witted and silver tongued, but yet everybody around him knows what he's talking about all the time. Oh yeah. He's, he's amazing. There's a, there's a quote I was talking to Jacob before, before you got on earlier, the quote that stuck with me is it's a fool that looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. Yes. I was like, and it was throwaway. It was mm-hmm. a throwaway line. It was just real quick because I believe it was when the barn was on fire and they were trying to get out as fast as they could. And he just like blurts it out. And I'm like, that's freaking philosophical. Like, I'm going to put that in my pocket and keep it with me. That's yeah. amazing. And they just, it's left and right with this stuff. They just toss it out. Dollar but, bills. Yeah. Well, but so again, what, like. What we're oh. arguing here is that the Cohen brothers are magical with respect to their dialogue, right? Yes, basically. Yeah. Um, there was I, another, I, and I'm, I'm looking for, yeah, I'm looking because, for the yeah. trivia quote. Here it is. John Turturro told Tim Blake Nelson on set, all right, look, the way it works with their movies, and I've been through enough of them and consider myself an authority, is that you take the script, and the movie is going to be two times better than the script. And the script is a classic. Tim, we're going to be part of a classic. Boy, was he right. Now, Taturo's done a lot of Coen Brothers, so he would know what he's talking about. But it's true. They take a good script, and then on top of... And this was one that they didn't even write. I think they adapted this. Um, so, okay. Well, writing credits are Homer for the epic poem of the Odyssey and Joel and Ethan Coen. So <laughs> they did write it. But the thing is, they can take a script that's already good, and then you just... You layer on more and more. The music, I mean, this movie without the visuals, without the music is very different. You add those onto a great script and you do, you have a classic. I mean, we're talking about the, we haven't even talked about the music yet. No. And we're right. you know, we have, half we an hour into this. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. the music, like yeah. that, that, so the dialogue and the script are great and it looks great. And then you add this music on top of it and it took it to a whole different level. The soundtrack for this movie outsold uh it was the number one record in like 63 weeks after it debuted it won a grammy it won a country music award they made two more soundtracks based off of it 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 was more popular than the movie right yeah 
Yeah, say that again, Jacob. Constant Sorrow was a hit. Mm, right? I mm-hmm. mean, I'm over here telling Steven, I mean, I swear, since the minute we watched that movie, I've been singing the one song from the <laughs> Sirens nonstop. Go to sleep, little baby. I mean, nonstop. It helps that and, you have a little baby you're trying to get to sleep every night, but oh, yeah. still. <laughs> no, it, that it, one, it like. It gets in your head. It worms its way in there. And, like, I I listened to the soundtrack when I found out we were going to watch the movie. I was like, my friend always told me the soundtrack was great. So I'm just going to listen to it leading up to the movie. I listened to it on repeat, repeat, like, just over and over. And the Go to Sleep Your Little Baby uh, was just stuck in my brain. I was humming it everywhere. Like, it just. I don't know. And the way they put the rhythm to the slapping the clothes on the rocks and stuff. Yeah. Like it was a character all by itself. Yeah. So I covered um, baby driver on this show a few months ago and that movie used music in a way that was unlike anything I'd ever seen. And it's probably the movie I would say with my favorite uses of music in a movie it overtook this because this movie for me was music in a story and to help tell a story that was some of my favorite ever, whether it's the opening credits being big rock candy mountain and just that song juxtaposed with, you know, seeing the three of them getting away from the chain gang and then chasing down a chicken. And then you cut to them eating the chicken and, and all of that you had that chain gang at the beginning was actually recording of an actual chain gang. Mm hmm. No that way. they used now again imdb trivia but according to the trivia the cohen's sought out and found like the last remaining living member of that chain gang and paid him for use of the music for use of the song but that was actual recording of a chain gang that they used at the beginning um you know you have stuff that you've I, I like even even i've heard you are my sunshine i mean everyone's heard that song um and having that as sort of papio daniel's uh theme song kind of was really cool the fact that the soggy bottom boys is what saves the three of them at the end of it and keeps them from getting uh arrested or you know worse and it's what helps papio daniel because um homer uh what was homer stokes um homer stokes go to sweep away the competition yep it turns out it's and i think that scene for me was really interesting because Everyone was a little bit uncomfortable with him bringing up the lynch mob and the secret society, but it was the fact that he was against the music that uh, that they were all listening to, and that was just this huge hit. That's what got him eventually like thrown out. <laughs> so yay, I guess. But at the same time, like it it worked. Um, uh, and that KKK scene, I want to I want to mention um, here in a minute. But yeah, the just the music. Throughout the movie, like it gets in your head. I I've been singing "Man of Constant Sorrow" for I didn't even watch the movie until today. I've been singing it all week just because I knew I was going to be watching it. So, and that song yeah. is a killer. Like mm-hmm. that song is so good. I I prefer the first iteration of it you hear, where it's just the vocals and that guitar. There's something about that blues guitar that I mean, you want like that gets me every every time is stuff like that and it's unfortunately not George Clooney singing um which i guess he did he did work on but the the person who did the vocals for that song is in the movie he has got a small part one of the other musical acts um i think he's the one playing the mandolin in um for that three piece that's on stage at one oh, point cool. he's a the country wife. star 
Yeah, he's a he's a country recording artist, and he was he did the vocals for the Soggy Bottom Boys. But Jacob Tim- actually told me a year ago to learn that song for him. Uh, on the banjo, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You told me to learn Man of Concert on the banjo, and then I I never admittedly i never listened to it just like i never watched this movie um and then i was listening to the soundtrack and i picked up that song i'm like daggone that guitar sounds great so i went to learn it and i'm looking up youtube videos and i learned a phrase that i told jacob a couple weeks ago that's like perfectly pinpoints why this song is so captivating it's done with sloppy precision like it sounds sloppy but every note that's played matters to yes. give it that, like, I'm just banging on the guitar and glorious sounds are coming out. It's like you can play it, you can play it perfect, but it's not meant to be. It's like eating barbecue ribs. You could probably eat them neatly with a fork, but it's wrong. <laughs> and everyone's going to think you're crazy. So you put you put your mouth all over it. You're like, it's a mess, but this is perfect. And that's so- that's kind of what that yeah. song is all yeah about. you you have just yeah. described for me like delta blues perfectly yes mm-hmm. um I rem- barbecue ribs yeah yep. yep i remember george carlin had a bit in one of his stand-up routines where he said uh you know it's not enough to know what notes need to be played you need to know why they need to be played yeah. and that always that stuck with me like that's the blues right there so yeah that's just uh music up and down like and the, the soundtrack is on uh, Spotify, so you can listen to it. Um, Tim Blake Nelson did actually do the singing for In the Jailhouse Now. That was him singing oh, really? that song. Uh, it was hmm. not, however, John Turturro yodeling, but you know, can't win them all. <laughs> he did have the Tim, greatest Tim yodeling Nelson, face, he is, though. He did. I think <laughs> Tim Blake Nelson is a, is a musician of some kind. I know he's from Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. I know he's, he's a director too. Nice. Um, and the dancing was just so over the top too. Yes, music. it wasn't like <laughs> just normal what you would expect to see. It was this just kind of a weird over the top uh, dancing of, of, that they were doing in the background, which is fantastic, by the way. It made mm-hmm. me feel really good about it. And that's just it. Like it's such a fun song, and then you add the visuals of them with those big beards when they're on stage doing it. Um, just, just so much fun. Uh, I was going to say something about Tim Blake Nelson. So he's done some more Coen Brothers stuff too, and I still need to see it, but, um, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. What? I know, I know. What? It was, it was one that came out and I didn't see it right away. And I have no excuse other than I just haven't done it and I need oh, to, and it's probably going to happen. It's probably going to happen within the next week. So, like, I'm there in a Coen Brothers many kick. Glorious things, so many it's glorious such, things in that. It's such a slow burn, but like, oh my word! It's like they can, there's one there is one tale that's told in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs that I hold as one of the greatest, most intense, most well performed incidents of an attack on a on a on a couple people that I've ever seen in my life and I will constantly go back and watch it just to just to see it 
oh my gosh, it's it's amazing. Every move made, every word said, every piece of music playing is perfection. Uh, and and I I'm offended that you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> well, I'll fix that soon. Okay. You okay. you watch this for me. I can watch that for you. Uh, that seems like a fair trade. It's is it one big long thing or is it episodic? So there are six episodes. So there are okay. six little tales that they tell. Uh, tell. But uh, so it's it's similar because if you look at the way this movie is set up, it's like a series of vignettes that are all strung together mm-hmm. to make this movie. Um, the, it's it so it's got that kind of a similar broken nature. But these are actual, you know, hard stop tales. Okay. And then they move on to a new tale. And I think there are six, if I remember right. Um, yeah, I think there's, I think there's six, and it, they're they're varying lengths too. Like yeah. a couple of them are real short, and then you'll get another one, and you'll be like sitting there for 30, 40 minutes, and you're like, this is a <laughs> this is an actual short like episode of a TV show, uh, you know. And it's it, there's just a fantastic little collection. I loved it. Well, I will be checking that out soon. Um, so I mentioned earlier, and I want to talk about Roger Deakins, who yeah. was the director of photography for this, and he has been the director of photography for a lot of Coen Brothers stuff. Um, they used a process on this. I love the colors in this movie. I love that look. It's got that kind of hand-tinted, sepia-tone, old-school pho- photograph type of look to it. And... Apparently, they did that digitally, and this was the first Hollywood film to um, to do that in a digital manner for the whole film. All right, so yeah, so they, they would take the movie, they would scan all the film, and then they'd do this color grade to it digitally and then reprint it back on film because they wanted this kind of almost Dust Bowl look and that, those real muted colors to everything. And apparently, the quote from Joel Cohen was, everything was greener than Ireland while they were down there shooting, because <laughs> I think they shot in Mississippi. So, mm. but man, it just, it had that great look because everything was, uh, almost everything was like skin toned. Mm. Almost, I think would be the way to yeah. put it. And I just love it. Roger Deakins though, that guy, he's a cinematographer for, if you go to his IMDb page, the top four known fours, Blade Runner 2049, Skyfall, Sicario, No Country for Old Men. Ooh. Like, you could stop there and you've got a great career. No, he's got 81 cinematographer credits, including 1917. Uh, most of yeah, most of the Coen brothers' later work. Uh, I think he started with them would have been mid 90s somewhere because he did Big Lebowski. Um, oh, Kundun, he Barton did too. Fink. Barton Fink, that is Barton the one. Fink, that was a Cohen one, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, I feel like they pulled a lot from the Big Lebowski and inserted it into this story. Now, not. I'm thinking more of the pieces, like the John Goodmans and the uh, Pete character. I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. And oh, John uh, Turturro. Yeah. John Turturro, yeah, and the um, um, music. The the guy who did the music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, T-Bone Burnett um, they yeah. pulled him from Big Lebowski as well so I feel like they took a lot of pieces that they used whenever they were making Big Lebowski and pulled them into this project I think so, now the Coens are known for I mean, every director's always got those people that they like to work with and yeah. John Goodman, John Turturro are two of the actors that the Coen brothers have in almost everything um, 
you know, Goodman might be my favorite character in The Big Lebowski as Walter Sobchak. It's it's hard to say because there's so many characters in that movie that I just adore. But there's something about Walter and like, well, I'll save that because I'm going to be talking about it uh, soon. But you're right. Um, and they do that. And when you work, when when you as a director can work with the same director of photography over and over, I'm sure they, they develop shorthand and they develop this ability to like, they know how Roger Deakins likes to shoot a film. Deakins knows how they like to have stuff shot, how they like to get coverage, how they like to work through their scripts. And it shows. I mean, the way this looks, the way No Country for Old Men, the cinematography in that is breathtaking. Um, he worked on The Lady Killers, Jarhead, which I didn't even realize he'd worked on. If you haven't seen that, that's a good movie. Um, it's not what you think what it's going to be. And if you listen, it, I'm I'm listening to you list list off these movies, and the range is huge. I mm-hmm. mean, just look at the range between The Big Lebowski and this movie. It's it's uh, almost I'm not gonna say polar opposite, but it's 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 pretty much as opposite as you could get from a cinematography perspective. And he was able to pull it off, and he was able to pull off what the vision was, even though it was the same group of people. So the range that these guys have is just enormous, and it's fantastic. Okay, so. Listen to this from 2010 to 2017. Just listen to this list of films. True Grit, which all three of us have seen, and that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. He was a cinematography consultant for Rango. A good movie. Yeah. Uh, I just in, watched it recently. In Time, Skyfall, Prisoners, Unbroken, Sicario, another Coen Brothers and Hail Caesar, and then... Blade Runner 2049. So you want to talk about then another way out there, different type of movie is doing something like a Blade Runner future set movie, you know, the same year that he does, uh, or a year after doing like a Coen Brothers movie called Hail Caesar. Like it's just, it's Hail amazing. Caesar. Hail Caesar was so bonkers too. Like if you haven't seen that, it's, it's worth a watch, but like, yeah, to go from that, to go into like this moody, uh, Blade Runner flick, it's it, it's wild, and the, how they how they tell a story and and change your mood based on colors and tone that mm-hmm. they use is that's I mean it's such an art form. You don't think about it. You always think about actors and this and that, but like so much of what we feel when you watch a movie is based on that photography. Yep. Yeah, and good cinematography will elevate. Like every every aspect of this movie is elevating, and it's just stacking on top of each other. You start out with great writing and a great script. Then they bring in all these wonderful actors to do that. So they're now you're taking a good you're taking a great script and you're putting great actors in there. And then you layer on Roger Deakins and his great cinematography and the look of the film and that brings it up another notch and then you add the music and the sound that they get and all of that and tie it all together with Joel and Ethan Cohen directing like how can you go wrong? There's a reason why I've yet to see a Coen Brothers movie I disliked. I like some more than others, but every single one of their every single thing they've ever made, I'm like that's good. It's just objectively good stuff. And then on top of that, you throw the parallels to some of the storytelling in The Odyssey by mm-hmm. Homer, and I feel like it's it is a real good movie. And I got to tell you, I, I've I've been thinking about this movie a lot since we watched it a few nights ago. And I realized that I think I like this movie better than I remembered liking it. I, I actually think it's probably uh, bordering on a top 10 in my list. 
the reason why is because it's got a nostalgia factor for me. I mean, I grew up in the South, kind of the in the middle of nowhere in the South, and there are so many vestiges that I see in the South that are still kind of around, like the river baptism scene. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember river baptisms, the frogs in the lakes. I mean, every lake that you went to, there were frogs just hopping around and the cotton fields kind of replaced with tobacco fields now, but it's, it's that, that sense of agriculture there. And, you know, you have the old general stores, which still exist, by the way, you guys mm-hmm. think, oh, those things don't exist. No, they still do. And, and I've lived within five minutes of one. And, you know, you have the traveling Bible salesman. I remember growing up seeing those guys, but I think they're gone by now. And, um, you know, where I grew up, there were always these little whispers of the KKK, and you would always hear these these little things, but you would never know if that was real or not. It was just kind of this this kind of thing that was just, there was an undertone there, and you're like, is this is this a real thing? So there was there was a lot of um, for me personally, just pulling all of that together. There was a lot of nostalgia in this because of the way I grew up and where I grew up. That I kind of went, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that this was this deep south didn't change in the 50 years or, or plus or minus that uh i mean it changed a lot but it was there were still vestiges there and so i i actually really loved it because you threw everything of what you said on top of the nostalgia factor yeah. of growing up in that that era i i'm starting to realize this was actually probably one of one of my favorite movies that's really cool. See, and that's that's a level of enjoyment in the movie that I'm just not going to have because I didn't grow up in that. You know, we, yeah. we have a little bit here and there. Um, you know, there's there's parts of my state that have some, sort of the old general stores and all that. But but for you to have kind of experienced that and then you get to see it in this movie, yeah, that's that's really cool. And it is. It's a fantastic movie. Like there's, I can't I, I can't think of anything bad to say about it. Really. Granted, I like everything, but still, like, it's just, it's so good, top to bottom. And if you haven't seen it, go watch it, because it's worth, it's worth the hour and 47 minutes you're going to spend watching it. It's not, it's not overly long, but it also doesn't feel short. It's, like, paced really well. And I think the, the sort of series of vignettes that you mentioned works for that, because, you get a little bit here and a little bit there, and then they'll bring in another character like Babyface Nelson, and that's just this little vignette where they meet him in the road, and they have that whole scene. Funny thing, another bit of trivia that I thought was interesting is um, the American Humane Society almost did not let the disclaimer of no animals were harmed to be used at the end of the film because of the cow scene until they <laughs> saw until they saw evidence that Digital Domain had digital cows that got shot and run over. Oh wow! Did they come on? They really thought that a movie set would have allowed the shooting of, of animals. I'm, and I'm sure not, but that that was how good it looked to them at that time. I guess it, it did. It, it was it was shocking to me. Yeah. Like I, I was I was kind of like, "Dad, gone." That looked real. <laughs> like they hit they hit a cow. I could just see people cringing in the theater. Yeah. Well, Steven over here is shocked by how how well it looked, but he I think he was also shocked in horror by them shooting the cow because if he's Steven's like Captain America over there, right? And uh, <laughs> yeah. I think he had the same response that Delmar had. Oh, don't do that! Oh. <laughs> they don't shoot the cows. Yeah, like we had when I was a kid, we had a cow, and I would go out and feed this cow out of a bottle uh, when it was oh. uh, was a little baby. So I got a soft spot for cows. I mean, I like a hamburger, so let's not pretend it goes that far. <laughs> but, you know, 
a living cow. I'm like, that cow's alive. He's great. He should stay that way. Uh, yeah, it was, it was shocking to me for sure. And also, like, that scene for me was really kind of cool because, like, watching it this time around, because you see how uh, that character is very manic depressive. And looking yeah. at it through that lens, like, you realize, oh, that's that's probably part of why he flips out on people when they, when he, because you get just that bare whisper of, that's babyface Nelson. And he's like, who said that? Yeah. You know, and yeah. he's not stable. And, he almost became the like, oh yeah, they forgot about him, but then he shows up right at the end of the movie, and he's back right. to he's back so in he his manic phase. Ride the lightning. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't even mention. So I love so many characters in this movie, but my favorite character is the blind guy running the radio station, played by Stephen Root. Stephen Root. Stephen Root wins a pan shot. You just freaking oh, watch. Yeah. Watch the Battle of the Buskers. That's uh, the, <laughs> he's in that as well. My oh. favorite parts when he. Why don't you go talk into that kid over there? Yeah. <laughs> well, I my my note is Stephen Root is a treasure. I love his expressions while he's <laughs> listening because he's playing the blind character. So he's got like he's just what he was doing to to portray being blind as he's listening to stuff is so good. And he uh he had one of his his way of um I, I captured it. I just have to play it. It's too funny. Um. This was him remembering the Soggy Bottom Boys. Oh, yeah, 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 remember them? <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I love it. <laughs> it's just like, who comes up with that? It, this is this is the magic of being an actor who's good at what you do. Is staring at words on a page and bringing them to life in such a way that everyone just goes. <laughs> That's incredibly natural. It makes no sense, but I'm in. I'm in with whatever just happened there. Also, this is one of my three favorite Steven Root characters, and he's played a ton of great characters, but there's this, Bubbles in Finding Nemo, because he was oh, that yellow yeah. fish. He and was Bubbles? He was Bubbles. No and then um, his character in Office Space, Milton. Yes. Oh, Milton. Yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> who doesn't love Milton? Who doesn't uh, ever remember the red stapler? I just want my red stapler. And that is <laughs> the funny thing is that movie got Swingline to make a red stapler because they didn't make one before that movie came out. You I have it one. Black. It's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, my wife's got it on her desk right now. <laughs> oh, but yeah, Stephen, I, I, you don't have one. I mean, I have one. She's <laughs> borrowing it. What, look, what's mine is hers, what hers is mine. That's the way this works, Jacob. That's right, baby. That's right. Yeah, but yeah. I I would have been remiss if I didn't mention uh, Stephen Root before we ended tonight because uh, he's just he's only again two scenes, but I loved it. And uh, yeah, uh, that, oh. that whole radio bit was great. Just the the whole walking in, you know, and they're like, yeah, he'll pay you money to sing into his can, and <laughs> you go in, they do all that, and he's telling Papi O'Daniel as they're leaving, Papi O'Daniel with his son and his two campaign managers who are just. The Yes Men, they cracked me up the whole movie. Uh, love it. <laughs> love this movie. So good. I'm so glad you find, so, you got to watch it. The, there is <laughs> one thing that anybody out there that's going to watch it, don't look at time as a realistic thing in this movie. No. They tell everybody you've got four days to get to the old house and dig up the treasure, right? But they have enough time for them to go multi-platinum in their record. Right? Yeah. They have enough time to have like eight different scenes, night scenes 
Uh, they have enough time for Pete to go back into jail and then get broken out of jail again. Yeah. I mean, there's it, they take the use of time in this movie very liberally. It's very fluid. Um, wibbly yes. wobbly, timey wimey, which is fine. Yeah. It, it just it just makes for amazing scenes. So yeah, definitely don't don't nitpick the the logic of this movie because uh, if you Please. do Jacob that, Jacob did point that. At <laughs> Jacob pointed it out to me while we were watching it. He was like, "Let's think about how many days have passed." I was like, "No, we don't have to think about how many days are passed." It doesn't matter. No. It's just a movie happening, and you just go, "That's fine." No, That's in fact, fine. Pete sums it up perfectly. If you if you think about time in this movie, that don't make no sense. So, <laughs> oh oh, I have to play this. So I captured a ton of stuff, but watching it this time, I captured a line from Delmar because. Immediately, all I could think of was Scott Johnson saying, as my dad would say, Pleasure. So, I had to capture that. Because the way he said pleasure. <laughs> pleasure. 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 Also, he said oh. Piggly Wiggly, so. Including that Piggly Wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. I had to capture uh, Piggly Wiggly. Who here has shopped at a Piggly Wiggly? I have yeah, been into a I Piggly thought. Wiggly once. Uh, oh, wow. And I don't even remember where. So who has picked up a whole pig from Piggly Wiggly and cooked a whole hog from Piggly Wiggly? Okay, that no. Yeah, I've done. Wow. That. Yeah, Piggly Wigglies <laughs> were still around. What? Just a few years ago. They're still around now. I haven't. You can seen drive through some. Time. Yeah, some towns still have Piggly Wigglies. You'll see the trucks on the highway if you're driving around down south. There's a Piggly Wiggly. They exist. Pig. That's what we called it. The pig. My grandma shopped there for years. Oh, another good visual gag in this was when they light the barn on fire early on and you see them all running around like crazy. You know, Everett's got his hairnet on and Delmar's just carrying a pig. <laughs> <laughs> like he's rescuing the pig. And then later on, they send the kid home. They send him with the pig. I love that. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Didn't Ashley walk in during that scene and then she looked at us and said, I wonder how much... If they're getting paid for the reward for this guy, I wonder how much they're paying him for burning down his freaking barn. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And firing <laughs> off all those rounds. Because they uh, they lit the, the truck on fire and all the bullets went off. Oh, gosh. Yes. That was um, awesome. This was another one I had to capture because I know these were big in the South, but we actually had a Woolworths here in my hometown. Um, for a, for a while when I was a kid and it was, I loved going there cause it was the store right downtown. It was the five and dime. It had everything and a lunch counter. So it was always really cool to go and have lunch down there, but I just love and stay out of the Woolworth. So <laughs> plus that guy had like gigantic <laughs> teeth. I don't know if those were fake teeth or not, yes. but those teeth were huge. Oh, um, there's so many good lines. There's this was the kid when they're walking up to him, um, uh, walking up to Hog Wallop's house. I nicked the scissors, man. Now there's a good boy. <laughs> that oh, Delmer. When, when he was shooting at them, and yeah. said, my, my pappy told me to shoot anybody from the bank, and they're in freaking prison yeah. robes. <laughs> <laughs> they're not from the bank. Shoot anybody from the bank. We're not from the bank. And anybody serving papers. We're not serving papers. Serving papers. <laughs> <laughs> serving papers. 
they've got their prison stripes on. It's just too funny. Uh, Everett, I had I had to capture these. Um, and this is actually another quote that I do from this movie. Anytime uh, I pretend to wake up, it's always that was my hair. <laughs> Either that or my hair, my hair. Oh, uh, and then uh, here's here's the one you mentioned earlier, Stephen. I hate this place. Uh, geographical oddity. Two weeks from everywhere. God, the frustration so in his voice. <laughs> it is. Oh, here's a line. Now, I quote this anytime somebody asks me if I want food of any kind. Uh, because, I, And I don't know why, but it's that same, we were talking about the kind of the use of language that Everett has. A third of a gopher had only aroused my appetite without bedding her back down. And so anytime anyone <laughs> offers me food, I have to respond that way. Fully aroused my appetite. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great, man. It's it's endlessly quotable. It's it so really good. is. It's it's not as quotable as Jurassic Park, but you're right. It is definitely <laughs> it's darn close. Beautiful. It is close. It's darn close. Plus in Jurassic Park they never said buying nipples. So <laughs> For, to translate for anybody on that, that was buying nipples. Buying nipples. Buying nipples. Because that's what ma—that's what their mom was doing in the Woolworth. She was. Buying oh, nipples. that's what she said. There you go. Yep. Ah, that one's a, a weird one. Uh, or cows. I hate cows worse than copper. I hate cows. Who hates cows? Worse than copper. Yeah. Ugh, I don't. Nobody. Know. They're delicious. Nobody. <laughs> it's very true uh, you guys I want to say thank you uh, for coming on for watching this movie Steven you finally saw it now you can say you've seen Oh Brother Where Art Thou and you'll, if you're like me you'll watch it again many times over because I did I liked it and I intend to show I intend to talk my wife into watching it as well because I, I need to I need to share it with the world now absolutely and Jacob thank you for uh, sitting down with him and uh, and watching it with him and then coming on to oh. talk about it. I just Don't love sharing. Don't thank me for that. <laughs> you gave me the opportunity to enjoy a night of wings, a night of beer, a great movie, just a good fellowship with friends, being able to chat about it. It's been awesome, man. Thank you for having us on. Hey, it, was, it was a ton of fun. So for anybody listening to my show that doesn't know about the show or shows that you guys do, you had me on earlier this week for Staring at Goats, which is all about COVID and, and weird stories involving that. So I want to say thank you again for that. That was really cool. But let people know about that show and uh, anything else you guys are working on. I'll be happy to pitch Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, and I'll let Jacob pitch Staring at Goats. But I do a show called Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, which Jacob uh, so kindly gathers the notes for. It's an odd and weird news show uh, with my wonderful sister-in-law, his wife, uh, Smashy, who comes on. We rant and rave. We tell funny stories. Uh, we hopefully entertain you for about an hour or so every Thursday night at 8.30 over at twitch.tv slash TV. Or download it from wherever you get your finest podcast. Just search for horseshoes and hand grenades, and uh, click the one that looks like me and Ashley standing in front of space. That's <laughs> because there's two of them, and I don't know what the other people are doing, but they're wrong. We came first. There you That's go. Right. And I'll give them a little more of a plug, a little more of a shout out. They actually did Dragon Con Live last year, and this year they got primo placement Saturday night, 9 p.m. Dragon Con, the digital, uh, the um, virtual version of it. So they were able to do uh, live Dragon Con last night. So that was pretty rad. Yep, talking um, about poop so. knives. 
Yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little nugget for you. There you go. Yeah, well, it'll, it'll right. help so, make little nuggets anyway. That's right. <laughs> On Wednesday nights, we do uh, Staring at Goats, which is where we talk about all the cor- things quarantine, all things pandemic. We talk about uh, things like, um, you know, what's coming with the vaccine and the testing, and but also mental health and how everybody's doing. And we talk about weird and crazy things that are people are going through especially now the places are reopening and we like to we've just transitioned our show where we're including uh, co-hosts um to listen to people in their unique areas and unique situations to really try to understand what people are going through in this time because it is kind of a crazy time so it's it's always good to know that other people in other locations are are uh, either going through something similar or, or at least having some of the same decision making so we, we try to cover that. And so this week, we're actually having somebody on from Texas, uh, Kelly Lynn Colby. She's a publisher. So um, we're kind of excited about that this week, too. So, yeah, that's where you can find us, Staring at Goats, Wednesday nights at 830. Excellent. Yep. Both are great shows. Uh, I listen to both. Uh, I try to catch them live whenever I can. So if if you're listening to this and you haven't watched either one, Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, I would say, is the funnier of the two. But it definitely can get goofy on Staring at Goats. I mean... Some of those uh, mask replacements that we were talking about this week, the the space helmets were pretty, pretty out there. That and the um, oh. the robot arm that does uh, <laughs> COVID swabs. No, oh, the, yeah. the swab the, robot the, arm, the yeah, slow they're, moving they're uh, robot arm of doom. So yes, uh, <laughs> Twitch. Twitch oh, TV slash two dorks two dorks TV. Two dorks. Just yes. two dorks. Check them out. Somebody's squatting on two dorks. Oh. We got to get that back. <laughs> um, so this show we record, I, I record it every Sunday night, usually around 8, 830, um, and then put it out on all the podcatchers anywhere on Wednesdays is when uh, I put that out. If you are listening to this, if you are watching this uh, later on, anything like that, and you can take a moment to go and give a review um, for Wait You Haven't Seen, for Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, for Staring at Goats, Please do that because that helps. That helps these shows bubble up to the surface and be searchable and, and show up a lot easier for other people. So, if you can do that, I'd appreciate it. I know you guys would appreciate it too. So, uh, thank you for that. And another thing that I'm going to bring up right now, and I don't have one in front of me because I forgot to bring it down here, but I have uh, some stickers that have this logo that's on my hat here. It's my TV's Travis logo. If you're listening to this, and I'm only going to do this here, but if you're listening to it, at reply to me at, on Twitter, Twitter, uh, it's at TV's Travis. If you at reply to me, the first 25 people that do, I'm going to be giving away stickers and a little note with each one. So, but I'm not going to be nice. mentioning it on Twitter until uh, for a little bit. So you got to be listening to the show or watching the video or something. And get a hold of me and get yourself a, a goofy little sticker. I'll mail it to you. Um, yeah, that's going to wrap things up. So, again, thank you guys. This was fun. Next week, uh, we're doing a, a triple shot of Cohen Brothers. So, Raising Arizona was last week. Oh, Brother was this week. Next week, my guest will be Miles and possibly Drew from The More You Nerd. We're going to be watching The Big Lebowski. Miles has never seen it before. He brought that up when we were talking about Tron a few weeks back. And when I when I lined up Raising Arizona and then I talked to you guys about Oh Brother, I was like, I got to talk to Miles. I want to do three Coen brothers in a row. So 
That's going to be next week is Big Lebowski. I am excited. I'm going to make sure I've got the makings for white Russians so I can have a white Russian while I'm talking to him about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I love this movie. Yeah. The, um, you talked about nostalgia with this. I get a ton of nostalgia from the Big Lebowski because it takes me back to my time at Michigan State where I first saw the movie. My friend uh, and his roommate made me watch it, and from that point on, every Saturday night we were at the student union bowling and it was old school, write your own scores out stuff because of this movie. You know, it was always just what I'd show up at their place and it's just F it dude, let's go bowling. So <laughs> I am looking forward to that. Um, yes. There are people who have never seen the big Lebowski. I was shocked too. So I know. Yeah, that's, that's tough. <laughs> I just showed it to my wife within the last six months. Podcast. Hmm? Right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know it was, it somehow became a blind spot for him, but until then, uh, I do want to say to everybody, you know, it's a weird time. So be excellent to each other. Right. Cause that's always good. Enjoy your movies. And, uh, for now we're going to have to R U N N O F T. This has been wait. You haven't seen. Some bitch, some bitch, some bitch, stupid son bitch, some bitch. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>